When I picked up the phone, it was my mom. And it had been about a month since we talked, which is not unusual. And certainly my fault. Anyway, my mom said that she had been invited to speak with a group of women at the local Hadassah. My mom's a therapist in the Jewish suburbs outside Baltimore. And um, these Hadassah women had this group that met regularly. All of them were women in their late 40s through early 60s. And when the group first started meeting, they apparently discussed all sorts of things. It was wide-ranging. But as time progressed, they realized that there was only one topic that they wanted to talk about and felt like they needed to talk about all the time, that they felt traumatized enough to have to talk about. And that was their relationships with their adult children. And at some point, this became the only thing that the group talked about, its official reason for being. And they had invited my mother to lead a discussion about how to get along with your adult children. So my mom is a big preparer. When she gets invited to talk on various psychological topics, she looks up articles, calls experts, talks to people. And as part of her preparation, my mom decided to call her own three adult children to see what advice they would give to the group about communicating with your adult children, about having a good relationship with your adult children. So my mom had already talked to my older sister, Randy, out in California by the time she called me here in Chicago. And she explained to Randy, it's the thing about communicating with your adult children and how to be close to your adult children. And she asked my sister what advice she would give to the group. Randy's advice was direct and to the point. She said, tell them to get a different leader. Adult children, supposedly adult children, and their supposedly adult parents in this edition of This American Life, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, I'm Ira Glass, back for another week documenting everyday stories in these United States. Today, Act 1, me and my mom. Act 2, Sandra Tsinglow and her father. Act 3, Sandra Tsinglow, her father, and his mail-order Chinese wives. Stay with us. So in this conversation with my mom, I was in the unusual position of being able to look like the good child in the family for a change. My older sister for a change looked like the bad kid. And I was able to say to my mom, you know, even if Randy thought that you weren't handling your relationships with us in the very best way, surely there was a way to express that that was um, a little less cruel. And my mom asked me, okay, so what advice would I have for this group? And I suggested that in the families of a lot of my friends, and I think in my family, I thought that um, one cause of a lot of tension is the fact that as a family, we don't have a story that we agree on about the past. The kids, my sisters and I, we have one version of what happened when we were children. 
Neverjin tends to be kind of dark, actually. Not completely, but there's a lot of darkness in it. And our parents have a completely different story. And, you know, I don't even think we need to come to a consensus. I don't think families need to agree about this stuff. I'm not even sure if they can agree. But I think there has to be some kind of mutual understanding that each side sees the past the way that they see it. So, today's program will not be an attempt to find this common story. But it will be an attempt to define that gap as it exists in a few families. The holiday season is just ending, and for so many people, the drama of the holidays is the drama of parents and grown children struggling to get along without disappointing each other or getting on each other's nerves. So to begin our program right now, I am pleased to welcome to our show, telephonically from Baltimore, my mom. Can I say something? I, I was just going to say, feel free to amend or correct. Yes, I, I when I when I told your sister what you said, she said, "Oh, well, I was just kidding. I didn't mean to be mean." So, oh, so I, I don't want you know, <laughs> her to be blasphemed. Uh. All right, now, but you're a professional psychologist. Now, don't you think often? Do, don't you think that there was a note of hostility in what she said? Oh, absolutely. Okay, there. Absolutely. See, and you and I can agree. And frankly, she's not on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so, Mom, so the thing I, I wanted to ask you about is, okay, so you had this seminar with, with all these... Uh, it wasn't a seminar. It was a discussion, discussion group. The discussion group. And I was uh, the facilitator. And how many women was it? Around 30-some. Oh, so a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had to characterize in a phrase people's uh, relationships with their children, would you describe them as being very good, uh, somewhat okay, generally kind of yucky? I mean, how would you describe it? I would say that... There were a lot of people whose dreams haven't been realized, uh, whose expectations haven't been met, and so there's a, a sense of disappointment, although there were some people there who were pleased with all aspects. And then, of course, the question was, well, why are you here? <laughs> to gloat? Was that the answer? <laughs> to gloat and show you pictures of grandchildren? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, okay. But- um, more to connect with the other women, I suppose. Um, but these are the uh, criteria for satisfaction. Do you want to hear them? Quickly. Um, whether their children were married. Yes. So that having single children was a disappointment. I'm just going to make a little checklist here. Whether, they're, whether, they're, whether their children lived close by or far away. God, I'm shooting zero for two so far. I keep going. All right. Whether their children appreciated them. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Whether they had one grand- for three. Whether they had grandchildren, somebody announced that they that uh, their uh, one of their children was pregnant with the first grandchild. Everybody, oh, and they clapped. You know, so that that's the epitome. Yeah. Um, whether their children were successful in in their lives, um, how much they liked their child's spouse and got along with them. You told me on the phone earlier something interesting about this. Yes, I told you that um, there were uh, several. Uh, people there who did not like their child's choice of a partner um, at the time that they got married, but had grown to love them very much, and, and, and in some cases even liked them better than their own child. See, now I wonder if that is because there is an inherent tension between children and their adult parents, that uh, the child sometimes wants to be treated as the child and sometimes wants to be treated as an independent adult. And for the parent, it's pretty much a hellish guessing game. And then, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people talked about walking on eggshells and how can I, um, uh, several people said, well, how, 
what's the right way to give advice? And, of course, the answer is you don't give advice unless somebody asks you for it. Do you think that this relationship is harder, the, the relationship between adult children and their, and their parents, is harder on the parents than on the children? Yes, because the parents have a dream of how they thought it was going to be, and it seldom matches the dream. Um, you know, one person said that her children are all single, all live far away, and she said she, uh, is, she and her husband are very lonely. And what's happened, you know, the good part is that they've gotten much closer to each other because they realize that they're all that they have. Right. All right. Well, um, well, Dr. Glass, I'm afraid that, that this would be about all the time we have for this particular segment of our radio show. Look, okay. I'm glad for any time I can get with my children. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Touche. My mom, Shirley Glass, a therapist in Baltimore. Coming up, a septuagenarian dad... Hitchhikes. Mommies are people, people with children. When mommies were little, they used to be girls like some of you. But then they grew, and now mommies are women. Women with children. Busy with children and things that they do. There are a lot of things a lot of mommies can do. Some mommies are ranchers or poetry makers or doctors and teachers or cleaners or bakers. Some mommies drive taxis or sing on TV. You know, I just got to say, I'm just going to interrupt here. When you get into the genre of music about parents, you are, you get into a a real sorry lot of music, a real just a real just a lot of bad music. I mean, we, I, we went on a little collection. You know, we're talking about Cat Stevens, father and son. Let's just. I don't think I can take this song anymore. Let's just go for something else. I'm a pistol packing papa. And when I walk down the street, you can hear those mamas shouting, Don't turn your gun on me. Now, girls, I'm just a good guy, and I'm going to have my fun. And if you don't want to smell my smoke, don't monkey with my gun. Old lady, old lady, old lady. Like a hobo when he's hungry, like a drunk man when he's full. I'm a pistol-packing papa, I know how to shoot the bull. The hold-up men all know me, and they sure leave me be. I'm a pistol-packing papa, and I ramble where I please. Old lady, old lady, old lady When I have that funny feeling That luring rambler's call I swing aboard some freight train And I shoot my pistol off Sometimes one shot will do me Sometimes takes four or five 
Sometimes I shoot all around Before I'm satisfied When you hear my pistol popping You better hide yourself someplace Cause I ain't made for stopping And I come from a shooting race Old lady, old lady, old lady My sweetheart understands me She says I'm her big shot I'm her pistol-packing daddy And I know I've got the drop You can hear my new sport roadster You can take my hard-boiled hat But you can never take from me My silver-mounted gat I'm a pistol-packing papa I'm going to have my fun Just follow me and you will hear the barking of my gun. Act two, Sandra's dad. I insist that this be the last radio commentary about my father. Okay, maybe I've never talked about him on the radio before. I just don't want this to become a habit. Sandra Tsingo is a writer, composer, pianist, and columnist for Buzz Magazine in Los Angeles. And we're actually going to bring you two stories from her about her father today, about how the adult children in her family deal with her father. This first story began as a column in Buzz Magazine. It also appears in Sandra's book, Depth Takes a Holiday. At one point, she and I adapted it for radio, and a shortened version of this story ran on NPR's Morning Edition. Here's the whole story understand that for years, stories about my father, anecdotes that I thought were throwaways, were the only thing anyone would ever remember about me. There I'd stand at parties, one hip jutted out, trying to tell amusing yet compelling stories about myself, at which point the dark-eyed man I was speaking with would lean forward, rest a hand lightly on my arm, and murmur, you know, I've been wondering for years. Yes, I'd breathe. A flame would leap into his eyes. How is your dad? Does he still wear his underwear backwards and do the Chinese snake dance on Pacific Coast Highway? I'd close my eyes in pain. No, of course not. Well, yes. First, let's take a step backwards. Forget my dad. Immigrant parents in general tend towards eccentricity, don't they? They arrive from the old country. Now they have VCRs and Cuisinarts. Their children are growing up to be monsters. And worse, the local Ralph stops carrying pig knuckles. For the record, my father does not wear his underwear backwards, only his sweaters. When the elbows wear through, you just turn them around and keep going. And yes, for the record, he did perform the Chinese snake dance for us kids, naked, armed only with a fluttering beach towel as he leapt and twirled, imparting his ancient Chinese folk song with a mournful howl. I know this may sound strange, but I've brought my father into the studio today to sing it. Papa? Okay, this so-called Chinese, I mean, snake song, actually I borrowed from old Chinese shepherd song. It sounds like this. Tian Shan Di Su Shamolen Lai Kai Di Xia Di Wang Hang Ho 
Shamoran Laikai. Dads lived in Malibu for some 30 years now, threatening to cause property values to tumble along with him. Pop, I'm going to tell this story now and the way I tell it, so I hope you're not embarrassed, okay? Okay, what, do, what choice do I have? <laughs> what, once a neighbor called the police to complain, my father was hanging out his old underpants to dry, Shanghai style, on clotheslines strung out in front of the garage. The underpants had holes in them. The complaint calls eventually stopped, but questions remain. Does my father, a retired aerospace engineer with science degrees from Stanford, Purdue, and Caltech, have to wear old underpants with holes in them? Is this a person who can afford, say, new underpants and a Maytag dryer, perhaps? Why, yes, would have to be the answer. Right, Papa? Yeah. <laughs> My father is one of those people who have untold stocks, bonds, mutual funds, IRAs, whatever, that they are continually shifting from one account to the next. For all his money, though, my father has always transported himself in and out of Malibu via hitchhiking. Yes, he owns his own car. He even bought me one, a Hyundai. He had to shelter income. But he doesn't like to drive. Say why. Oh, because the pollution, also the petroleum reserve only have 50 years. So we have to save this for the next, next generation. But you particularly like hitchhiking. That you hitchhiking can meet lots of people. Mm-hmm, especially in Los Angeles. Now, beloved listeners, this is my commentary, so I'm going to try and give you my point of view, what I see. Usually I'm driving through Santa Monica, and I'll come by, like, let's say the corner of Wilshire and Forth, and there my father will be standing, clutching his lucky grocery bag of scientific papers, trying to flag down a ride. I'll never not pick him up. That would be a little too how sharp the serpent's tooth. But I, I have been tempted to just put my foot on the gas pedal and race towards the Pacific happy and free, like somebody whose 75-year-old dad is not still copying rides from the public. Okay, this is your section. Okay. Let's talk about the day you got the really good ride, and where were you standing? First, I always got good ride, but that was a special good ride. <laughs> I just come from dentist office in the late afternoon at the, on the wheelchair of a near Western, and the, uh, the first car stopped. A very gracious lady looked like Lori Taiyang. She drove. Uh, looked like who? Lori Taiyang. You don't know because no. very. Oh, movie star, very gracious lady, Loretta Young. Oh, oh, like a Chinese movie star. No, it's American, Loretta. Oh, Loretta Young. Loretta Young, I'm sorry. Loretta Young. Okay, Loretta Young. Loretta Young. Okay, okay. I see very gracious. I mean, without no hesitation, let me in the backseat of her four-door Mercedes sedan because in the front seat, the passenger seat was occupied by a young man. So then we talk about different things. So I say, what kind of business you people in? They say, a movie business. Oh, I say, that's exciting. Did she, you said she had known a lot about Chinese opera and film? Oh, yes. We discussed many Chinese movies. So she knows very, quite a lot. And uh, then somehow we talk about Clinton. And uh, the lady say, yeah, the, I like both Hillary and the Bill. We were in the White House recently. Then I say, what's your name? She say, 
Angelica Houston. I said, wow, I don't go movies. I don't know much movie stuff. But I do know Houston family. Because your father, John Houston, passed a few years away. I have kept the track on your family story. Note that, that that's an important point for my father because unlike Ms. Houston, I didn't go into my father's business science and it's been a little disappointing. But she gave you a letter, right? I asked her, can you give me your autograph? For finally she turned the envelope back. It says like this, to Mr. Lowe. It was a pleasure to have you in my car, then their heart with two wind, then love, Angelica Houston, then down there, XXXX. Being Chinese, I don't know what the XXX mean. Then later I asked my friend, they say, that's kissing, 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 you know. <laughs> okay, so there's a story. Here's the way I remember my dad first telling me and ending this. I remember you said that while Angelica Houston was a good ride, she wasn't a dream ride because uh, she had a friend, this friend to drop off in Beverly Hills, which took you a little out of your way. And at that point, it would have been quicker for you to take the Crosstown bus because you had to transfer. But by then, I remember you lowered your voice. You're an expert in such delicate matters of decorum. And you said that you thought at that point getting out might be a little rude. Papa, why don't you just take us out with a song? Another song? Yeah. This song usually I sing with my wife. Since today Sandra didn't invite my wife, I have to let her in the kitchen, stay in the kitchen at home. This song describes some, a young woman longing for her lover. Sounds like this. Sandra Tsingo and her father in Los Angeles. This music, by the way, is also by Sandra. She composes and performs it. This is from her album Piano Vision. They play this music sometimes on morning edition. You can hear this after the little news breaks. Sometimes you can hear these little piano riffs from this record. Anyway, more parents and adult children coming up.
Coming up, Sandra Tsingo, her father, and his new mail-order Chinese brides. It's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week, of course, on our program, we invite a variety of writers and performers uh, to to tackle some theme that we choose. Our theme today, our theme today is um, families in which the parents and the children see the story of their family in radically different ways. And um, and rather than have a whole big bunch of different kinds of performers, actually, we're only having one performer on the show today, Sandra Lowe. And um, we've arrived at Act Three of our program. This is a story called uh, My Father's Chinese Wives. Sandra has performed this a lot. 
around Los Angeles and most recently in New York City um, in a show called Aliens in America. My father has decided at age 70 to take a Chinese wife. He has written his family in Shanghai, seeking their help in locating likely candidates. He has good confidence in this project. He's hoping to be married in six months. Let's unpeel this news one layer at a time. Question. Is my father even what one would consider marriageable at this point? At age 70, my father, a retired Chinese aerospace engineer, is starting to look more and more like somebody's gardener. His feet shuffle along the patio in their broken sandals. He stoops to pull out one or two stray weeds, coughing phlegmatically. Later, he sits in a rattan chair and eats leathery green vegetables in brown sauce, his old eyes slitted wearily. At times, he almost seems to be overacting this lizardy old part. He milks it. I am old now, he'll say with a certain studied poignance. I am just your crazy old Chinese father. If he's that old, why does he still do the same vigorous daily exercise regime he's done for the past ten years? Forty-five minutes of pull-ups, something that looks like the twist and much unfocused bellowing. This always performed on the most public beaches possible in his favorite Speedo, one he found in a dumpster. No, crazy old Chinese father is, in truth, a code word, a rationalization for the fact that my father has always had a hard time spending money. Why buy a leather briefcase to take to work when an empty Frosted Flakes cereal box will do just as well? Papers slip down neatly inside, pens can be clipped conveniently on either end. Why buy bounty paper towels when at work he can just walk down the hall to the washroom, open the dispenser, and lift out a stack? They're free. He can bring home as many as we want. If you've worn the same sweater for so many years that the elbows wear out, turn it around. Get another decade out of it. Wear it backwards. Which is why to this day my father wears only crew neck, not V-neck sweaters. Terrific is my older sister Caitlin's response when I phone her with the news. Bear in mind that Caitlin has not seen my father since the mid-80s, preferring to nurse her bad memories of him independently via a therapist. She allows herself a laugh, laying aside her customary dull hostility for a moment of more jocular hostility. So who does he think would want to marry him? Someone Chinese, I answer. Oh, good, she exclaims. That narrows down the field to what? Half a billion? No, as usual, he's doing this to punish us. Think about it, she continues with her usual chilling logic. He marries a German woman the first time around. It's a disaster. You and I symbolize that. Because he's passive-aggressive and he's cheap. But no, to him, it's that rebellious Aryan strain that's the problem. You take an Asian immigrant just off the boat, for example. Here is a woman fleeing a life of oppression under a communist government and no public sanitation and working in a bicycle factory for ten cents an hour and repeated floggings every hour on the hour, every day of every week of every month of every year. After that, living with our father might seem like just another bizarre incident of some kind. It could happen. Caitlin scores some compelling points, but nonetheless... I'm bothered for a different reason. Because in describing the potential new wife, he has used only that one adjective, Chinese. 
He has not said, I'm looking for a smart wife or even a fat wife. He has picked Chinese. That word is meant to stand for so much. Asian. Asian women. Young Asian ladies. It is a month later, and, as if in a dream, I sit at the worn Formica family dining room table with my father, photos and letters spread out before us. Since my father has written to Shanghai, the mail has come pouring in. I have to face the fact that my father is, well, hot. You see, he says, seven women have written, ha! He beams, his gold molar glinting. He drinks steaming green tea from a chipped laboratory beaker which he handles with a Beauty and the Beast potholder. Remarkably, my father doesn't make the least effort to mask his delight, no matter how inappropriate. He is old now. He can do whatever the hell he wants, is how I now understand it. With a sigh, I turn to the photos. And in spite of myself, I am wowed. Cao Pa, Ling Ling, Xiu Pai. 28, administrative assistant. 47, owner of a seamstress business. 39, freelance beautician. The words jump off the pages, both in English and Chinese translations. These women are dynamos, achievers, with curly black hair, in turtlenecks, jauntily riding bicycles, seated squarely on cannons before military museums, standing proudly with three full-grown daughters. One thing unites them, they're all ready to leap off the mainland at the drop of a hat. And don't think their careers and hobbies are going to keep them from being terrific wives. Quite the opposite. Several already have excellent experience, including one who's been married twice already. The seamstress has sent him shorts and several pairs of socks. There's much talk of seven-course meals and ironing and terrific expertise in gardening. Super achievement is a major theme that applies to all. But the biggest star of all, of course, is my father. He clears his throat and gleefully reads from a letter by one Lu son. It reads, Dr. Lo, your family has told me of your excellent scientific genius and your many awards. I respect academic scholarship very highly and would be honored to meet you on your next visit. You see, my father chuckles, they have a lot of respect for me in China. When I go there, they treat me like President Bush. Free drinks, free meals. I do not pay for anything. He had his chance. He got married once for 25 years. He was a terrible husband and a worse father. Caitlin is weighing in. All jokes are off. Her fury blazes away, further aggravated by the fact that she is going through a divorce and hates her $50,000 a year job. Her monthly Nordstrom bills are astronomical. MCI is positively crackling. He's a single man, I say. Mum's been gone for 12 years now. And now he gets a second try, just like that, Caitlin exclaims. Clean slate, start right over, buy a wife. It makes me sick. He is totally unqualified to sustain a marriage. A family structure of any kind collapses around him. Do you even remember one happy Christmas? Twinkling lights and tinsel suddenly swirl before me, and looking deeper 
through green foliage, I see my mother looking beautiful and crisp in lipstick and pearls, her wavy auburn hair done, except for the fact that she is hysterical, and my father, his face a mask of disgust so extreme it is almost parodic, is holding his overpriced new V-neck tennis sweater from Saks out in front of him like it was a dead animal. I try to block it out, is what I say. Well, I was six years older than you, so I can't. Caitlin's pain is raw. Why does he deserve to be happy now? He made Mama miserable all her lifetime. He was so cheap. I think she was almost glad to go as soon as she did. A $70 dress, leaving the heater on overnight, too much spent on a nice steak dinner. He could never let anything go. He could never just let it go. He just could not let things go. Meanwhile, on its own gentle time clock, unsullied by the raging doubts of his two daughters, my father's project bursts into flower. And 47-year-old Lou, the writer of the magic letter, is the lucky winner. Within three months, she's flown to Los Angeles. She and my father are married a week later. I do not get to meet her right away, but my father fills me in on the stats. And I have to confess, I'm surprised at how urban she is, how modern. Lou is a divorcee with, well, ambitions in the entertainment business. Although she speaks no English, she seems to be an expert on American culture. The fact that Los Angeles is near Hollywood has not escaped her. This is made clear to me one Sunday evening, three weeks later, via telephone. I know you have friends in the entertainment business, my father declares. He has never fully grasped the fact that I am a typist and that Swanson's film's clients include such Oscar contenders as Kraft Foods and Motorola. Aside from having knitted me a sweater and playing the piano, my father continues, you should know that Lou is an excellent singer. Turning away from the phone, he and his new wife exchange a series of staccato reports in Mandarin, which mean nothing to me. I'm sure Lou is quite accomplished, I reply. It's just that... Oh, she is terrific, my father exclaims, shocked that I could be calling Lou's musical talent into question. You want to hear her sing? Here, here, I will put her on the phone right now. Creeping into my father's voice is a tremulous tone that's sickeningly familiar. How many times had I heard it during my childhood as I was pushed towards the piano, kicking and screaming? How many times? But that was twenty years ago. I gulp terror back down. I live in my own apartment now, full of director's chairs, potted ficuses, and Matisse posters. I will be fine. My father has moved on to a totally new pushy, who picks up the phone, clears her throat, <clears throat> then bursts out triumphantly. I have left you, Dr. Lowe, and taken the Toyota. So there. Five weeks later, Lou just packs her suitcase, makes some sandwiches, and takes off in the family Toyota. She leaves her note on the same Formica family dining room table at which she'd first won my father's heart. My father is in shock. 
Then again, he's philosophical. That Lou, she was bad. That one. <laughs> she says I do not like to give her gifts. She says I do not like to go out at night, and it is true. I do not. But I say go. See your friends in Chinatown. It is okay with me. I like it better when she leaves the house. Sometimes it is more quiet. But Lou does not want to take the bus. She wants to drive the car. But you know me. I am your crazy old Chinese father. I do not like to pay for her auto insurance. And then he actually says, as with many Asians, Lou is a very bad driver. Ha! Is Caitlin's only comment. Isn't it interesting how he seems to repel even his own kind? Summer turns to fall in Southern California, causing the palm trees to sway a bit. The divorce is soon final. Lou's settlement, including ten thousand dollars, the microwave, and the Toyota. Never want to dwell. My father has picked out a new bride, Shu Ping, thirty-seven, homemaker from the Guangzhou province. I groan. But no, Shu Ping is very good. My father insists. He has had several phone conversations with her, and she comes very highly recommended. Not, I have to say, like Lu. She was bad that one. <laughs> Shu Ping is very sensible and hardworking. She has had a tough life, boy. She worked in a coal mine in Manchuria until she was twenty-five years old. The winters there were very, very bitter. She had to make her own shoes and clothing. Then she worked on a farming collective where she raised cattle and grew many different kinds of crops by herself. I'm sure she's going to fit in really well in Los Angeles. I say. Chu Ping indeed is a different sort. The news, to my astonishment, comes from Caitlin. I received, her voice trails off. The very words seeming to elude her. A birthday card, from Papa, and Chu Ping. My sister continues in a kind of trance of matter-of-factness, as if describing some curious archaeological artifact. On the cover, there is a clown holding balloons. It's from Hallmark. Inside, in gold lettering, cursive, it reads, "Happy birthday, love, Shu Ping, and your daddy." Your what? I think Shu Ping put him up to this. The envelope is not addressed in his handwriting. Nonetheless, Caitlin thinks it over, concurs with herself. Yes, yes. I believe this is the first birthday card I've ever received from him in my life. The first. It's totally bizarre. A week later, Caitlin receives birthday gifts in the mail: a sweater hand knit by Shu Ping, a box of mooncakes, a bunch of orchids. She is flipping out. Oh no! She worries. Now I really have to call and thank her. I mean, the poor woman probably has no friends in America. Who knows what he's having her do? We may be her only link to society. Caitlin finally does call, managing to catch Shu Ping when my father is out on the beach doing his exercises. Although Shu Ping's English is very broken, she somehow convinces Caitlin to fly down for a visit. 
It will be Caitlin's first trip home since our mother's passing. My first meeting of either of my father's two Chinese wives. I pull up the familiar driveway in my Geo. Neither Caitlin nor I say anything. We peer out the windows. The yard doesn't look too bad. There are new sprinklers and a kind of intricate irrigation system made of a network of ingeniously placed rain gutters. Soil has been turned and thoughtfully. Cypresses have been trimmed. Enormous bundles of weeds flank the driveway, as though for some momentous occasion. We ring the doorbell. Neither of us have had keys to the house in years. The door opens. A short, somewhat plump Chinese woman in round glasses and a perfect bowl haircut beams at us. She is wearing a bright yellow "I hate housework" apron that my mother was once given as a gag gift, and I think never wore. Catlin, Sandwa, she exclaims in what seems like authentic joy, embracing us. She is laughing and almost crying with emotion. In spite of myself, giggles begin to well up from inside me as if from a spring. I can't help it. I feel warm and euphoric. Authentic joy is contagious. Who cares who this woman is? No one has been this happy to see me in ages. Welcome home, Shu Ping says with careful emphasis. She turns to Caitlin, a shadow falling over her face. I am so glad you finally come home to see you, Daddy, she says in a low, sorrowful voice. She looks over her shoulder. He old now. Then, as if exhausted by that effort, Shu Ping collapses into giggles. I sneak a glance over at Caitlin, whose expression seems to be straining somewhere between joy and nausea. I jump nervously in. It's so nice to finally meet you. How do you like Los Angeles? I've heard so much about your cooking. My father goes off to put some music on his new CD player. That bad Lou made me buy it. He exclaims. But it is nice. Shu Ping bustles into the kitchen. Dinner ready. In five minute, she declares. Caitlin waits a beat, then pulls me aside into the bathroom and slams the door. This is so weird, she hisses. We have not stood together in this bathroom for some fifteen years. It seems somehow different. I notice that the wallpaper is faded, the towels are new, but no, it's something else. On one wall is my mother's framed reproduction of the brown Da Vinci etching called "Praying Hands," which she had always kept in her sewing room. Right next to it, in shocking juxtaposition, is a green, red, and yellow Bank of Canton calendar, featuring a zoftic Asian female in a bikini. I can't go through with this," Caitlin continues in stage whisper. "It's too weird. There are so many memories here, and not good ones." And like debris from a hurricane, the words tumble out. I go by the kitchen, and all I can see is me standing before the oven clock at age five with tears in my eyes. He is yelling, "What time is it?" The little hand is most of the way to four, and the big hand is on the eight. It was three eighteen twenty-two minutes ago. So what time is it now? What's eighteen plus twenty-two? Come on, you can do it in your head. Come on, come on. I go by the dining room and I see him hurling my Nancy Drew books across the floor. They slam against the wall and I huddle against Mum, screaming, "Why do you waste your time on this when your algebra homework isn't finished? You good for nothing. You're nothing, nothing. You'll never amount to anything." I go by the bedroom. 
please. I have this sickening feeling like I'm going to cry, that I'm just going to lose it. I want to just sit down in the middle of the floor and roll myself into a ball. But I can't. Caitlin's rage is like something uncontainable, a dreadful natural force, and I am the gatekeeper. I feel if I open the door, it will rush out and destroy the house and everything in it. Please, is what I end up whispering. Please. Let's just eat. We'll be done in an hour. Then we can go home. I promise. You won't have to do this again for another ten years. Or maybe ever. At dinner, endless plates of food twirl their way out of the kitchen, Xu Ping practically dancing underneath. Spinach, teriyaki-ish chicken, shrimp, some kind of egg thing with peas, dumplings packed with little pillows of pork. And amazingly, there is no want of conversational material. Photos from Shanghai are being pulled out of envelopes and passed around, of her family, his family. I do recognize three or four Chinese relatives, a cousin, an aunt, a granduncle? Their names are impossible for me to remember. We had met them in China during our last trip as a family. I was fifteen. It was right before our mother started to get sick. Shanghai is a distant, confused memory for me, of ringing bicycle bells and laundry lines hanging from buildings. What I do remember is how curious my father's family had seemed about Caitlin and me, his odd American experiment, ooing over our height and touching our auburn hair. There were many smiles, but no intelligible conversation, at least to our ears. We probably won't see any of these people again before we die. But Xu Ping will have none of it. Hardy Manchurian builder that she is, she is determined to use the crude two-by-fours of her broken English to forge a rickety rope bridge between us. You, Sandwa, you! You play the piano, no? Mozart, he's very nice. You will show me. And you, Catelyn, you, you are a teacher, no? That is good, Catelyn, good. Catelyn, you are very, very good. My father puts his spoon down. He is chewing slowly, a frown growing. This meat, he shakes his head, is very, very greasy. He turns to Xu Ping and the lines of both sides of his mouth deepen. His eyes cloud. He says something to her in Chinese with a certain sharp cadence that makes my spine stiffen. Xu Ping's face goes blank for a moment. Her eyes grow big. My stomach turns to ice. How will she respond? By throwing her napkin down, bursting into tears, running from the room? Will she knock the table over, plates sliding after each other, sauces spilling, crockery breaking? Will we hear the car engine turn over as she drives off into the night, leaving us here frightened and panicked. It is none of these things. Xu Ping's head tilts back, her eyes crinkle, and laughter pours out of her, peal after peal after peal. It is a big laugh, an enormous laugh, the laugh of a woman who has birthed calves and hoed crops and seen harsh winters decimate countrysides. Pointing to our father, Xu Ping turns to us with large, glittering eyes and says words which sound incredible to our ears. You, Papa, he's so funny.
My jaw drops. No one has ever laughed out loud at this table, ever. We laughed behind closed doors, in our bedrooms, in the bathroom, never before my father. We laughed sometimes with my mother on those glorious days when he would be off on a trip. But Caitlin is not laughing. She is trembling. Her face is turning red. Why were you always so angry? She cries out in a strangled voice. It's a question she's waited thirty years to ask. Why were you so angry? There is a shocked silence. My father looks weary and embarrassed. He smiles wanly and shrugs his thin shoulders. No, really, Caitlin insists. All those years with Mama, why? I don't know. My father murmurs. People get angry, and I know in that moment that he doesn't have an answer. He literally doesn't. It's as if rage was this chemical that reacted on him for twenty years. Who knows why? But like some kind of spirit, it has left him now. The rage is spent. He is old now. He is old. Dusk has fallen. And long shadows fall across the worn parquet floor of the dining room. After a moment of silence, my father asks Xu Ping to sing a song. The housefrau from Guangxu opens her mouth, and with an odd dignity, sings simply and slowly. My father translates. From the four corners of the earth, my lover comes to me, playing the lute, like the wind. Over the water, he recites the words without embarrassment, almost without emotion. And why shouldn't he? The song has nothing to do with him personally. It is from some old Chinese fable. It has to do with missing someone, something, some place that perhaps one can't even define anymore. As Xu Ping sings, everyone longs for home. But what home? Xu Ping for her bitter winters, my father, for the Shanghai he left forty years ago, and what about Caitlin and I? We are even sitting in our own childhood home, and we long for it. Papa, why don't you just take us out with a song? This song usually I sing with my wife. Since today Sunday didn't invite my wife, I have to let her in the kitchen, stay in the kitchen at home. This song describes some a young woman longing for her lover. Sounds like this. 天涯呀，海去，你呀，米子呀，小妹妹相逢小相亲，狼牙咱们俩是一条。
program was produced today by Peter Clowney and by myself, with at least Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Dolores Wilbur. Contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rocklin. Special thanks today to KCRW in Santa Monica for recording Sandra Tsinglo and her father. My Father's Chinese Wives was first published in Quarterly West. Sandra's own book is called Depth Takes a Holiday. That's Depth. Essays from Lester, Los Angeles. If you would like to buy a copy of this program, it's only 10 bucks. Call us, WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380, 312-832-3380, or you can write us at WBEZ, 848 East Grand Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60611, or you can email us, our email address, radioatwell.com, radioatwell.com. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. Pop, I'm going to tell the story now and the way I tell it, so I hope you're not embarrassed, okay? Okay, what, do, what choice do I have? Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.